Come on in, sit down, grab a beer, and get comfy for yet another Beer Napkins podcast. We hope you'll find the next 30 minutes or so enjoyable, educational, and inspirational. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check our web, our site at beerandnapkins.com, all one word, and use the word and, and not the symbol. And you can also find us on Twitter at Beer and Napkins, again, all one word. Beer and Napkins helps generate new ideas and new initiatives by leveraging informal third spaces, community-enabled design, and visual thinking. Now off we go. A big round of applause for our hosts. Welcome to our Beer and Napkins uh, podcast this evening. And uh, we are at Fireforge Brewery. And fortunate enough, we have Brian Sandrowski, owner of Fireforge Brewery, here at a table with us. So we wanted to kind of give him a little uh, background of Fireforge as we are partaking in our podcast at his place. So, Brian. Thanks, Bill. I, I appreciate you letting me come on just to say a couple words. And thank you for coming to hang out with us today um, and record your podcast on site. Uh, excited to have you guys here. Um, yeah, uh, again, my name is Brian. Um, Fireforge has been open here in downtown Greenville for a little over a year now. Um, so we're still still pretty new. We're, uh, we're a small batch brewery uh, operating a seven barrel system here downtown. We actually don't distribute at all. So currently, um, the only place to get our beer is on site here in the tap room. Uh, right now, we've got about 20 different beers on tap. Um, so we're always trying to push out something new and something interesting. Uh, we do have a mix of classic styles, everything from you know IPAs, uh, Kohl's, Hellesbach, uh, Belgian Blonde. But then we get a little weird uh, at times, too. We've got a, a Belgian triple with a, a guava and star anise. We've got a pale ale with lemon peel and sage. So... A little bit of a little bit of something for we hope for everybody that they can come enjoy in a in a relaxed atmosphere here downtown. We've got an outdoor beer garden for people to come and just kick back. So whether you just came out of a, a business meeting at your office downtown or you just bike 20 miles on the Swamp Rabbit Trail, uh, we hope that everybody can feel comfortable here at Fire Forge. Now well, it's a great addition to our downtown and I'm drinking right now the cosmic the comic size, yeah, our tribute Bohemian to the, uh, uh, yeah, the Bohemian Pilsner, the uh, our tribute to the, uh, the, the glorious font of Windows in the past, the Comic Sans. <laughs> so uh, my wife Nicole has a marketing and sales background, so she's really into the design kind of stuff. So she's kind of a, a font geek. So, um, that's so that's awesome. our, our comic size is a tribute to that. Yeah, and I think Pam is uh, doing a seasonal, right? Yeah, the brand new Infinity Scarf. Yeah, the yeah, the Infinity Scarf. <laughs> it's uh, we we call it a pumpkin spice latte. It's um, it's uh, it's a milkshake IPA. So it's got uh, it's a hazy with some lactose, uh, vanilla, and then we added cold brew coffee, and then all your favorite pumpkin spices. So yeah. so a, a kind of a different again a different twist on your uh, your traditional pumpkin spice beer. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming by. And Paul, what are you drinking? I don't remember. Whatever is the first one on the oh, list. Oh, that's there. the uh, the Cracker Soul Colt. Yeah, that's one of our best sellers. Uh, yeah. Year round. Very refreshing. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Well, cheers and thank you here, for allowing here. us to come in and do our podcast. Cheers, here. y'all. We'll have fun and uh, definitely enjoy uh, your time at Fireforce. Thank you. Thanks thank you a lot. So much. Appreciate your hospitality. Great. Um, I know we have a lot of um, topics to to cover today, and um, but um, just a uh, kind of a brief thing on beer and napkins. Uh, we have been doing a lot of uh, 
interaction with our downtown uh, future planning of Greenville. So we had a session with the, some of the planning board, uh, had a lot of great design feedback for the future of Greenville. So that's what we've been focusing on for beer and napkins. But uh, we had a, a great time in Chicago, right, um, Paul? We yeah. met you up there. It was interesting. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. Um, Downtown. A little, uh, a little burning man for, for my taste. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it was fun. It was interesting. Yeah. I learned my heart can breathe. Didn't know it could breathe. Now I know it can, yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but good, good folks up there. Hopefully start a beer napkins up in Chicago and with some folks up there. And uh, But it's great. Great to kind of connect in a different spot and uh, uh, kind of hang out up there. But speaking of uh, Burning Man, we got a gentleman with us today, Dr. Chris Rice, and uh, he's keeping Austin weird or we're keeping him ahead. How would you or, say or that? Or is <laughs> Austin needs weird. no help to stay weird. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, it's it it really is, you know, having having only been here a, a few years, um, Austin is as weird as they say, and it's it's getting weirder in some really interesting ways as we, you know, kind of navigate what it's like to be an honest to God boomtown. Uh, never been any place that's grown this fast, and somehow it it still manages to keep that flavor to it. So it's it's a great great city. I can't wait to get out there. I have not been to Austin yet. And unfortunately, so I haven't seen E.T. or some of the classic movies either. You so haven't seen E.T.? Yeah, and I saw Phil Yanoff, our local tech guy, he said he didn't see it either. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Well, come, on, come on down to Austin. We can fix both those things, right? We can knock it all out in one go. One game. I haven't been to Austin either. I've been to Austin. <laughs> you won't come back. <laughs> I'm guessing if you ever probably go, you not. won't come back. Right in. Um, but uh, I'd like to kind of give a intro to um, Chris before we get started, but I can kind of read some of the bio, the long bio. So you really got a lot of things going on, but I uh, just want to kind of give you a proper intro. Uh, Chris is the founder and managing partner of Refuturing, where he leads foresight, strategy, research activities. As a futurist, ethno, say if I say this right, ethnographer, experience, uh, designer, uh, educator, political theorist, and you've been uh, the past 20 years exploring the intersections of society, technology, economics, the environment, and politics. Uh, during your career, you've worked for different clients, higher education, government, community development, including Salesforce, University of California, San Diego, Kentucky Council of Post-Secondary Education, uh, the College of Business Management Institute, Kentucky Department of Library, Archive, and others. But um, I think the most interesting thing your, your things are doing is uh, really kind of really pulling these dots together and, and really understanding the context of the dynamics of, of technological, social dynamics. So we want to hear more about 
what you're seeing out there, some of your key points and stuff. But, and I want to allow one of my colleagues to ask questions as well. Um, I've got my own little pet um, topics I'm really wanting to kind of understand, but I'm going to turn it over to um, Pam. Will you want to kind of start with so many um, questions for Paul? Or let, why don't I turn it over to you, Chris, just to kind of share a little bit your own perspective of kind of the opening. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I'm really excited right now to be working in that, that field of foresight. And I think it's the reason to me why it's so important, you know, two reasons. I mean, one, you know, nobody, as it says at the top of the website, you know, nobody can predict the future, right? One of the most common misconceptions about futurists and people doing you know, foresight strategy work. But in a really chaotic world, uh, being able to sense those patterns that are emerging and bring sort of rigorous uh, frameworks and methodologies to understanding the way things could unfold based on trend work, and then seeing the array of those and identifying collectively, whether that's as a community, as a business, as an institution, where are the futures that we think that we might want to head to and what can we do now to try to get there? So I think that's that's really valuable. When, when things get chaotic, it's good to take a deep breath and see how we can do things today uh, to manage our way as best we can into that. So number one, you know, that's something that gives me a lot of joy. Second thing is that I think one of the things that really disappoints me kind of looking at the world is you hear a lot of quote unquote futurists that are sort of hand wavy, you know, in the future, of these things it's all hand wavy and it's all driven by uh, technology and a good foresight work has to look across a number of different trend lines if you're just predicting based on technology you're going to get a lot of really weird ideas <laughs> about the future some of them are you know really bland really corporate uh, representing futures and ways of life that won't seem familiar to folks from Appalachian Kentucky or rural South Carolina you know it, it you just don't see those folks represented in those futures so for me one of the things that I'm really kind of uh, I don't want to say militant about but you know really the need to bring in looking at different social variables environmental economic values uh, trends just to paint yourself a, a much more uh, broad and holistic view of the future to give you a better idea of, of things that you can anticipate and, and try to plan for. And so I'd really like to get people as they think more about the future to think more about those uh, holistic uh, futures rather than just what the latest shiny thing is going to bring. Thanks. Thanks for the intro. Pam, you want to kind of lead off any questions? Uh, well, um, I guess I should introduce myself a little bit, but uh, this is my second time jumping into co-hosting. Uh, very nappy, but uh, i am um, uh, been involved with beer napkins for a while. And uh, here in Greenville, I've had some leadership roles in terms of uh, helping people uh, get technology skills to uh, scale up for, for the emerging careers. So I'm definitely interested in helping, you know, looking at future trends and how I can help people navigate those. And, and I tend to 
think in terms of um, how can we like help shape the trends or you know take advantage of the trends. Awesome. So just uh, I, I noticed something while we were just going through there a few minutes ago that the connection on the internet kind of lagged a little bit. So just for those of you listening to the podcast in the future, uh, no pun intended, the fact that we're talking to the future, but uh, in the future when you're listening to this podcast, uh, know that, that because of the internet connection, there could be some drop-offs. I can't edit that out in post, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, um, so first of all, yeah, thanks for, you know, really, thank you so much for joining. And for, for, I think it's great. I have some very serious questions. So my first one is, where are my flying cars? We've been <laughs> flying cars since 1950. We've been mechanics, <laughs> and I want them. So why don't we have flying cars? I mean, that's I think, because when I think of futurists, that's what I think of, is where are my flying cars? So what's your answer? Yeah, I mean, flying cars are today what we would call uh, a retro future, right? It's the past idea of the future based on where they were at the time and how they thought the, the future would unfold, right? And that's, you know, and it's a legacy future that, that sticks with us. And one of the reasons why uh, we call the business uh, refuturing was because it was one of those needs to help people imagine new futures rather than being uh, prey to what we call hand-me-down futures. So those, those retro futures about flying cars. Now there are still people, I, I mean, I, we, we were at BIF uh, this, this past year, there were some folks there talking about flying cars and how they thought that would unfold. And, and I got like shushed down and just savaged in the back channel for saying, there are not going to be <laughs> flying cars. And the reason that you can say there won't be any flying cars, uh, so you, you technologically, is it possible to make a car fly? Sure, you know we, we could absolutely do that. But then you picture, okay, uh, how are how are insurance companies going to handle it the first time one of these things falls out of the sky into a playground full of kids, right? Um, so that number one, insurance companies are going to have a really hard time uh, with flying cars. A second thing is, uh, you know, autonomous vehicle technology has a very difficult time getting cars to work in two-dimensional uh, streetscape space. Now, if you add a third dimension in an incredibly complex urban airspace, um, autonomous vehicles are nowhere near being able to do that. And we don't have enough pilots to keep uh, commercial air uh, travel functioning well now. So uh, you're not going to see a lot of people doing sort of Uber for air taxi uh, type stuff because they're just not going to be able to, to fly those things. So when you look at just the technology trends, you'd say, sure, we can have our flying cars. Uh, but then when you look at a number of trends around that, you start to see, okay, maybe not so much. First, we'll tackle the, the scooter problem. Then we'll deal with flying taxi. Well, oh, my God, yes. Yeah, <laughs> already, but I, I'm, I was interested to hear you. I love the way you positioned it as retro future, because we do have a tendency to try to predict the future based on what we've heard in the past. And you know that reminds me of that, that Henry Ford quote that said, basically, if, if I had asked everybody what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, which means that they're framing the future in terms of today's world. Flying cars is a perfect example of that, because we have such an infrastructure built around four wheels hit the ground. Uh, we have enough problem with electric. Uh, you know, um, 
Tesla why they're having problems. You know, if we can't get a charger on every corner like we have gas stations, the infrastructure just doesn't support, like you say. Yeah, we can put a flying car in the air, but, you know, where are they going to go? So retro future, I hadn't heard that term before, so I'm really, I'm yeah. digging on that. I always think of the, the little, when I was a kid, I loved these future kids books with the design of the Batman cars. And yeah. I look back at what the future perspective in the 50s, winged cars. It just, I, I love to get back and look at that. And it's it's there every generation. So I was just looking through a postcard set from uh, early 20th century France. And it was sort of images of the future 100 years hence. And probably a lot of your listeners have seen this. You know, the most famous one is the uh, picture of the classroom of the future 100 years from now. And the kids are all wearing these like little suction cups on their heads connected to their <laughs> To this machine and they're throwing books and this kid is grinding the books in the machine and it's just pouring into the heads of these kids but the other really fantastic one i saw was uh it was a a bus compartment suspended from the bottom of a, a large whale that was going underwater and then another uh set was like these these people were playing croquet and scuba gear kind of underwater right and it reminded me that there was a time when we really thought that underwater living was the future, right? And we were at Epcot last year, and now it's a Nemo ride. But I was telling my kids, no, when I was a kid and we came to Epcot, it was all about these labs and things and how we were going to be living and working under the ocean uh, in, in the future. And my kids were like, wow, that just is not happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, not until we absolutely destroy the atmosphere we have to right. Mars, right? Right. So, so this kind right. of like segue into the term I think you called it galactic oh, rollback galactica. oh galactica rollback yeah what, can you get a little background what does that mean so uh, you know I've got to come up with a better a better name for that trend and it's one I've been using with some some clients recently and if you remember, I mean, one of my favorite shows, I was rewatching this with, with my son, was that it's sort of, I guess it was like 2005 or so reboot of Battlestar Galactica, right, that Ronald Moore did that was on Sci-Fi Channel. And I, I really, he was struck, you know, uh, by the show because it was just like old submarines, right? All the phones are wired phones, just like old sub films. And there's a scene where Bill Adama says, you know, there's not going to be any, you know, networks on my ship, right? And all the controls are impossibly like old and mechanical and everything was dialed back. Well, you find out in the first hour of the show that the reason you do that was because, you know, the Cylons could come in and put a virus on everything. And all of a sudden, all of your fancy technology was useless, right? And we've seen that trend extrapolated in a number of pieces of fiction. So, uh, uh, Singer uh, is uh, an author, uh, uh, P.W. Singer, I think, has a book called Ghost Fleet, which uh, he's a great uh, thinker on the future of warfare. And part of that scenario is a future China-U.S. naval war in the Pacific, where because all of the components on the battleships are Chinese in origin, there's a back door into those systems. And effectively, that technology gets shut down and U.S. warships have to go in and refit with uh, old pre-internet technology in order to fight. 
And you think, well, that sounds weird, right? And then if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, you uh, if you watch that show at all, one of the things that they tried to do this past season was say, okay, well, why are the controls on the Enterprise so low tech and and physical and analog when we've seen ships with touchscreens and spore drive and all of this other stuff. And it's, you know, it's exactly this idea of, of, of trying to prevent those sort of uh, attacks uh, that maybe low tech is better in some situations. And then just this past week, we found out that the U.S. Navy was going to roll back installation of touchscreen networked controls on certain classes of battleships because we found out that one of the incidences over there near the uh, Strait of Hormuz was that uh, they had these controls and then in an, a tight situation, they attempted to split the throttle and the steering control, the two different touchscreens. The person operating it accidentally sent both controls to another screen. They lost control of the vehicle and there was the collision. So now they're rolling it all back to older analog controls. Now, 2005, this seems really weird that you would do that. Fast forward, you know, 15 years later, and we're really doing it. So the idea is that we always have this idea in our mind that technology is always moving forward, that it's always going to go inevitably to a class or to voice assistance, that everything is going to become, you know, shiny, bright future, when actually, you know, it doesn't necessarily unfold that way. That's actually a relatively recent artifact in human history. So if you think about that, you know, there's a great book called Shock of the Old, which I highly recommend reading that talks about how even when we get newer technologies, older technologies still tend to stick around for a really long time. So the fastest growing physical medium uh, by which music was sold last year were cassette tapes. Yeah, that's I totally missed that, Chris. Yeah, I, I, I need to understand context a little bit more on that because I can understand the the, the nostalgia associated with vinyl um, and and the idea that it's warmer and, and it's you know it's, it's analog and blah blah blah. Cassettes though really baffle me because they are literally the worst way to do music. You can't yeah. you can't you, know, you can't jump around. I remember buying a, a sharp. I remember this, I got it for my 20th birthday, a sharp uh, tape deck where if you press the play and fast forward button, it would look, it would speed forward and look for gaps in the music. And it would stop yeah. so that you could fast forward and stop right before. And that was like huge text, right? Yeah. Huge text. Yeah. Curious, this cassette thing is, is making me go, it's not nostalgia, what is it? So, so absolutely, part of it is nostalgia, no, no doubt. Uh, but some of the rest of it tends to come from our fears of having everything digital, right? What happened? So we just had this incident a couple of weeks ago where Microsoft shut down its digital bookstore. And all of a sudden, all your books that you had bought on that book service were just gone. Uh, there was a story in the media just a couple of days ago about a, a journalist who was completely shut out of his Apple account, lost all his books, all his music, all his movies, all of that. And there was no appeal. It's all just gone, you know? So I think younger people have, there's this kind of growing distrust. And if you look at the right places, you see it. So there were all these stories across the U.S. this past winter when there were power outages 
um, or internet failures in the winter and people who had bought these sort of Nest thermostat or Ecobees, all of a sudden, no heat in the middle of winter, right? Uh, people getting locked out of their houses because all of a sudden their August door locks didn't respond to internet connections, right? It's exactly the Galactica scenario, right? You've networked your whole house and all of a sudden the things that you're a guest in your own home. You don't really own it because you don't have control over it. So I think some of this return to older technologies is because precisely this idea that, well, what is ownership? What do I have if I'm not online? And it's also parallel to this trend that we've seen where people are retreating to private uh, messaging spaces rather than mass social media, right? So it's a, it's a different shift, and that's why I mean that it's not always like a continuous trend of progressive technology. Sometimes we choose to take a step back. You know, Apple Watch, Apple's most successful product category today, there has also been a parallel interest in mechanical watches. So now all of a sudden the mechanical watch industry is growing, growing, growing at all price points, right? The, the, the new has also driven an interest in the old somehow uh, refuses to refuses to go away. So when we talk about galactical rollback, don't just think that everybody's going to be on mass social media and we're going to put Facebook brain implants in our head to message. And, you know, if you're just looking at tech, you go, sure. Right. But then there are broader social and value trends that we have to think about. So, so I'm seeing this played out into popular culture with stranger things. The, um, desire to kind of go back and I mean this show has become blown up right the styles even seen in a lands in a catalog the whole you know, the uh, rugby shirts are coming back. yeah yeah I mean the mustache but are we looking at true trends or are we looking at fat with one of the things I think that we forget is that a lot of times what we think is a trend is really a fad, and what is a fad turns out to be a trend because I think there's also some discontinuity in the future, right? So today we may see Stranger Things being a hot commodity and a property because, well, maybe it has good writing. Um, maybe it's just a good show. And so we look at the artifacts of that and we, we buy them and then it dies out. But three or five or six or 10 years later, all of a sudden there's a resurgence and it was really based on the original bad. Uh, so I also think some of this futurism is discontinuous. It's not always a, a, a calm, a, a curve, a smooth. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? A absolutely. And that's why you, um, it's a very important to understand the difference between fads and trends. So, so in foresight work, we'll say, look, for as far ahead as you want to look, look twice as far backwards. And that gives you a longer wave idea of where trends are heading, right? So that's why I always recommend when thinking about this, that book Shock of the Old is great because this guy takes a very long-term look into the past and sees that trend of older, seemingly outdated technology staying with us uh, for longer periods of time. And, and why is that? Is it just nostalgia? Are there good cultural or social reasons for that? There's an excellent book called Craft. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It's spelled C-R-A-E-F-T. I'm trying to remember the the author's name now, where he talks about sort of these older uh, technologies from rural England that have managed to sustain themselves into village life 
uh, even into the 21st century, right? So it gives you a, a broader perspective to know what changes and why. So Stranger Things right now, we are in the midst of sort of an 80s nostalgia thing. One reason for that is Gen X is finally kind of stepping up into what will be a very temporary uh, lead position in society because we're a small generation and we're always ignored, but we'll claim this moment in the spotlight as we get it, right? So there will be some things 80s wise, if it's specific to like 80s culture, you know, fanny packs are, are like coming back as part of the 90s thing. So you'll, you'll see that, right? You'll see that and it'll disappear very quickly. One of the things you can look at is if there's like a really sudden acceleration and it's a very narrow cultural area, that's really good grounds for it being a trend or for a, for a fad, excuse me. If you see something and it spreads more broadly across different areas of society and manufacturing and music and fashion and education and literary themes that you'll see in books come out, which are great, uh, great indicators because publishing times tend to lag events by you know two or three years from the time it started writing to the time it gets published. So there are ways to look to see more lasting trends. Um, and that that's what I would suggest to do. Follow that foresight technique of looking backwards twice as far as you're going forward and see what are some of the enduring things that might be feeding into what you see today. So uh, I just finished watching um, The Great Hack. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it just pretty much solidified um, about our personal data and issues and so on. Will Facebook last? What is, and that's a kind of a million dollar question, but what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on the current social media platforms and prevalence of some of these social dynamics? That, that's, a, that's a great question. Will Facebook last? Yeah, probably but it won't be what you see today. So uh, Nokia, for example, basically a tin plant, right? And then became one of the dominant telecom uh, device manufacturers of our time and then turned into something very different after the, the Microsoft purchase. So companies can change and, and transform. And I think that's what you see Facebook desperately trying to figure out, right? It's, it's in the business of very quickly trying to unify the, the backend messaging structure of all of its uh, properties. Uh, at the same time that it's gonna be adding by Facebook to everything, so it'll be Instagram by Facebook uh, by the end of the year, WhatsApp by Facebook, et cetera. And that's where they're trying to head off regulatory impact on their business. On the other hand, where they clearly see the growth uh, is in areas of uh, VR, uh, in uh, cryptocurrency. You know, they're really doing some interesting but slightly weird business activity in the background that is not being social media as as their as their business. So yeah, I think they'll probably be around. They're well capitalized. They still make money. Nobody really likes them. Uh, so the key is, is to find businesses where it doesn't matter if people like you, but you can still be profitable. And they're smart people and they'll find some way to do that. But they have zero trust, right? right. I mean, like in addition to like certain products that they've come out with not being very good, who, who really puts a, I, I'd be really curious to know, who puts a Facebook portal 
in their, you know, their camera device with the TV, their version of the Amazon Echo Show or or whatever it is. Who who are these people? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to figure out. Like, are you know, uh, I have some real estate uh, in Florida that I'd love to sell them. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, yeah. So yeah, so will Facebook be around? Yeah, but not the way it looks like. And you know, look, it's really hard for me to say this. I mean, uh, Phil, we wouldn't have met uh, without Twitter. We met on Twitter before we ever met face to face in Biff. Uh, so many of the opportunities that have come to me and the friends that have been there and the places I've been and communities I've got to be part of only existed uh, that. Uh, so it's hard for me to say it, but we're really at the beginning of, and we're only at the beginning of it, the beginning of that downturn for mass social media. Uh, well, and I, I think, you, you know, social media, I always felt like it's been the gateway drug for real life, right? So it's yeah. it's what we do now to be introduced. In the old days, we went to the sock hop, we went to the, you know, to the drive-in, we went to the malt shop, and that's how we met people. Now we're doing it on social media. I think, I also think you're right in that social media, we're still in the wild, wild west phase. If you think back to the first automobiles made, they were crap. They fell apart a lot of times. So we didn't... We haven't, we've made them better each year. We, we understand more and more how people use them, how they, they find utility. I think the same thing's going to happen in social media. Like these private networks, we're going to have to find that Venn diagram of our life that is social networking that's private and public. And I don't know where that is yet. I think we probably are skewed too, too far one way now or the other. But, but it wasn't overcome by advertising and a lot of pushing things back in the early stages. And to me, how do you filter all that stuff out, the bots and the other things? The easy way is to charge for it. The reason we get ads is because we're the product, and all those free platforms, we're the product. Right? All right. <laughs> well, let, let me suggest, I mean, the, the, car, the car metaphor is an interesting one, but I, I would encourage us maybe to think back to a, a, a larger metaphor, which is the metaphor of how weird transportation was from like 1895 until about 1940, right? So you had still had horses uh, in, in cities. You had horses drawing military equipment on the battlefield in World War One, you know, all the way up to 1920. Uh, in a lot of cities, you had extensive streetcar lines. Um, and then, and people forget this, early on in automobile manufacturing, you had uh, electric vehicles, there were electric cars uh, in 19, around 1905, 1910. Uh, in 1923, we were making cars not out of American steel, but out of soybean-based plastic. Ford was manufacturing those. We had a lot of weird stuff going on with transportation, and it was not by any means certain that the car as we understand it today was the thing that was going to emerge. So the question we should ask ourselves is social media as we understand it today, is it uh, you know, a plastic soybean electric car that just isn't gonna make it? Is it a Model T? Is it a street car? You know, what is that? Or is it a horse? You know, is this thing gonna fade away really quickly? So that's what I would say when, when we talk about uh, in foresight, not extrapolating from a trend, the question is to say, okay, what's the function of the thing? Do we have other historical parallels where we can look at function, not necessarily 
form, right? And sometimes by looking back and not just forward, we can see that, okay, is it really about the car or is it about mobility in a really funky period of American history? Well, that's a, that's a programming thing, right? Jobs to be done, right? So what are we trying to do when we create these things, jobs to be done? That also, when you say that, reminds me of, uh, I don't know if it was Theodore Levitt's book or, or whose book it was, Marketing Imagination, where they talked about if the, if the why didn't the uh, train people see themselves in the transportation business, uh, they would have been the first people to build, to build airlines, right? If they saw themselves in the transportation business, they would have, but they didn't. They saw themselves in the train business. So it's the same kind of idea is expand the definition, look at the job to be done, you know, from a programming standpoint, when you're doing design sprints. Um, I, I love that angle. You had some questions? Well, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, social media has been, uh, has been, you know, performing some useful communication roles and while the specific tools, you know, we may have some frustrations, but I think they, we've gotten some important goods out of them and I don't think people will really want them to go away. So like one of the reasons why we continue to hang out on Facebook, people know we're mad at them. It's, uh, you know, for, especially for those of us who are focused on maintaining family relationships, a lot of times, you know, friends from the past, you know, a lot of times it's Facebook that's made it easy to do and we wouldn't be connected. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. If, if Facebook wasn't providing some form of value, it, it wouldn't be used, right? It wouldn't be used. So the, the curious thing to me is to look and see, okay, uh, do where do we maybe see signs of leakage, right? Where, where do we see that? So, uh, one thing I've noticed is that uh, a lot of folks that were sort of early on Facebook that were connections for me of all kind of, it was uh, like when people just sort of sneak out of the party without saying goodbye, right? There was the whole like rage quit Facebook thing, or uh, you know, not too long ago. And then a lot of folks just started not, show, not showing up, right? And then, I, you know, I got off of my, you know, I'm, I'm, done i'm out the door for there the other interesting thing for me is is uh you know just monitoring in terms of like twitter usage like there's no like right now there's no like big rage quit twitter everybody likes to complain about how awful twitter is and it's a, it's a cesspool but but there are uh there are valuable things there as well so the key is is uh you know what i would encourage people is as you're getting on your social network of choice pay really close attention to who's not showing up at the party or which, which voices are becoming more and more quiet. What's your value add from participating in the network? And then take a look to see where things are coming up. Where are people getting the value elsewhere? So talk about dating, right? Uh, Paul mentioned, like, this is how people meet each other. This is how they connect. There was that great study that came out uh, last week showing how uh, the, the majority of relationships begin online uh, through these services. It isn't people meeting at church, it isn't people meeting through their friends or meeting people at work, it's online dating sites. And I was just gobsmacked. This was sort of an area of blindness to me that I was really interested in looking at. And then, you know, I, so I said, okay, let's take a look at this trend and then let's look back and see where it is. And if you look back 20 years, 
you can start to see uh, and the rise of it is in these services that promise to do some matching with you based on relationship quizzes. Right. And this really you look back and you see that around the early 2000s. And then you can look at sort of matchmaking services, how those went professional in the late 80s, early 90s. And so it's actually this is a secular trend that you can see that we were getting away. And it isn't necessarily an artifact of people being extremely online people. This is a long term trend related to other social uh, and work trends. So uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's fascinating. So watch to see what other things like online dating is in a few online dating app locations now. Uh, is music discovery gonna head elsewhere? Is calendaring is, you know, if somebody like knocks out how to do shared family calendars or organization calendars in a cheap and easy way, Katie bar the door because, uh, you know, that's a huge thing keeping people in Facebook right now. So that's what I would say. Watch to see where the points of leakage are. It, it's funny you bring that up. I just set up a family calendar in Google for my wife and I so that we can put our uh, meetings and appointments in there. And it shows up on her phone because she just has a calendar, uh, you know, a widget that shows up on the front page of her phone because I kept, she kept forgetting I was out of town or forgetting an appointment. So we created a family calendar, but it was through Google. Uh, you got to be in their ecosystem. Sure. So that's interesting. I just wonder um, how much does privacy and security work into this whole online dating? Um, is that a, you think there's a, I mean, that's all everybody's thinking about now is privacy and security. Seems like. Yes. And you have to, I, I think this will be, you know, people like to toss out very cavalierly privacy is dead. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. The people for whom privacy is dead are people in their mid-50s older, who are the people who tend to put the most revelatory information online. People who are 25 and younger are much more circumspect now about what they put out about themselves. There's the whole like fake, fake Instagram account, fake uh, Finsta or whatever they call it. And then there's like their private secret account and like, man, it gets complicated. Uh, and part of that was driven by when parents were getting bad advice to get all of your kids passwords for their social media accounts and log in and monitor it. Well, the first rule of intergenerational warfare is to uh, make no communication uh, on un uncoded channels, right? So whether it's lingo or whether it's whatever, so the young people started figuring out how to hide in plain sight on the social media network. So they got very good at, at privacy, right? So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is who owns these services and what are they doing? So for instance, it was recently revealed that Grindr is actually owned in large part by a Chinese company that has links to um, Chinese intelligence services. So people who were getting on Grindr uh, discreetly uh, probably are, they think maybe they're living a private life, a, a hidden life, but not necessarily. Uh, I think, you know, I was having a conversation the other day with my kids. I'm like, look, TikTok 
I know it's really popular right now, but it's bad news. To me, it looks for all intents and purposes like a front for, uh, for Chinese intelligence uh, as they seek to get, because teens are notoriously bad about OPSEC and InfoSec, recording stuff around the house with stuff in the background. If you look at their videos over time, you know who's in the house, who's not in the house. And since you know their IP addresses, it would be really uh, easy to get all kinds of really valuable uh, operational information from what's going on in teenagers' uh, TikTok accounts. So uh, I had that long conversation about TikTok with my kids. So when we talk about privacy, it isn't always in the way that you think of it. Like our generation, we think of uh, ad privacy, they're getting our data. Like it, sound, it feels like my phone is listening to me because I'm getting ads for something two minutes after I talk to my, my spouse about it. But then there's a whole other layer right, that goes back to the ownership and the API access layer that you really have to think about. So that's how I think about privacy and security uh, these days is what's really going on with ownership patterns, API accesses, preferred deals uh, that, that people are getting. So for me, that, that's where the, the interesting places to look are. Hey, uh, Chris, uh, thanks for a lot of the um, perspectives of the future and how to the context of the future. I, I'd want to end our conversation on us lay people. Um, a big uh, focus that I have is, is this book environment, be resilient in this book environment, um, constantly changing, understanding the context, applying my own personal learning, self-development in this environment. What's your perspective of what we should be doing, whether how small it is, in preparation of this environment, whether it's our careers or our perspective or family or whatever? So I, I would say this, the, the best thing that you can do to help yourself is to, uh, to be aware, right? To just start that, just start a, a habit of uh, what we call in the, in the foresight business horizon scanning. Are you, are you doing that regularly, right? I mean, in other words, instead of like mindlessly consuming, you can sort of set up filters for high quality resources or high quality individuals that are giving you great things and make sure that you're covering all of those steep areas. You know, if you're just reading like the tech websites. Are you reading some economic websites? Are you taking a look at different environmentalist scholars are saying on Twitter? Right? Are you keeping a good look at social trends, including demographics? I'm always astonished that when people think about their own futures, uh, as people think about their own futures, they're, they, they have an image that the future 20 years from now is going to be a lot like it is today. And they make plans with that in mind which is really dangerous, right? The world 20 years from now is not going to look, I mean, there's some things will be consistent, right? Uh, but a lot of stuff will, will change. And I say that uh, Jim Dater, who is a longtime uh, foresight instructor in the uh, futures program at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, always called this like a continuation model of the future. We'll just kind of go on linearly into the future today. So the best thing that you can do Keep an eye on those trends and continually question your own model of the future. Because all of us have this model 
in our head, whether implicit or explicit, of what those futures could look like. So um, uh, be more like a fox and less like a hedgehog, right? You know, strong ideas loosely held and be always on the lookout for contradictory information. And if you ever hear yourself do the thing, well, that could never happen. You know, you know, nothing like that. It's impossible. The instant you hear yourself say that, write that down and then immediately go look for con uh, contradictory information. Right. If something indicates what you believe, then you may be on to something. Actively question that. So always be scanning and then always be questioning what your model of the futures are. And if you do that, you're going to be in good shape to be able to quickly change when things start to change around you. That's great advice. Thank you. Any other questions, Pam? No, I think we've, we've, I've been, I've chewed up, we've chewed up quite a bit of time already. Wow, this has been so, it's been such a fun. Thank you so much, Chris. Enjoyed hanging out with you guys. Have a few fun questions for you before we head out. What do you, what's your favorite whiskey? Uh, right now, I am drinking, uh, as a Kentuckian, I am uh, contractually obligated to uh, drink bourbon, uh, not whiskey. Um, so uh, I am uh, currently drinking uh, a lovely glass of uh, double oaked bourbon from Woodford Reserve, which is my sort of go-to daily, uh, daily uh, uh, label there for, for bourbon. And drinking out of this lovely uh, you can see it on video, can't see it, it says uh, uh, Kentucky, uh, heaven must be a Kentucky kind of place. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is from a, a bourbon glass from a grade store, Kentucky for Kentucky, which uh, sells these sort of uh, Kentucky things. And I had some uh, Kentucky shaped ice cubes in there. Oh, well. ah. so, so yes, uh, bourbon, uh, always uh, really enjoying uh, Woodford Reserve, double the double oak, which is uh, just a spectacular bourbon the last couple of years uh, worth of batches. You know, Jefferson, uh, Jefferson's Reserve is good, Jefferson's Ocean, very nice bourbon for the price point. But if you ever get a chance to try a glass of uh, Pappy Van Winkle, let me, let me highly recommend uh, the experience. I, I once had a, a one ounce pour of uh, Pappy 25, and it was, I, I, I saw God. It, it was, <laughs> It was a religious experience and I'll never forget it, but it was, uh, it's not something you, it's like going to Disney. You only do it every once in a while, but uh, it was, it was well worth it. <laughs> Great. All right. Two questions, fun questions. What sound or noise do you hate? Sound or noise do I hate? Oh, wow. Um, I, I am still like, uh, if you get a piece of chalk that hits a chalkboard just right and does that squeak uh, from, from the old faculty days, you know, sometimes you would just hit it the wrong way and it was so cringe inducing. Still can't stand it. <laughs> Favorite book, movie, or book saying? Favorite movie or book saying? Wow. Uh, oh, that's. Oh, wow, what a great question. Um, you know, I'm having a hard time thinking of a particular quote from, um, from, from a book. I will say that the, the movie that I, I do, I did make my son before sending him off to college, that I did make him sit down with me was uh, The Godfather, just because it's just chock full 
of great uh, quotes uh, to come away with. So I think that one is um, really well worth it. But I'll tell you a book that I, uh, I read recently. It was a, and usually I don't like take great notes while I'm reading it for a fiction book. I just kind of try to enjoy it. But I recently read Infinite Detail by Tim Mom, which is a book that will change your life. I mean, this is just an amazing piece of, of recent fiction. Uh, and I must have taken just reams of notes from great quotes or passages. The way he sort of chews on the language uh, there is just really fantastic. So um, while I can't think right off the top of my head of a great uh, passage right now, that would be those would be a couple of places I would. Godfather and Tim. Yeah, Tim, Infinite Detail, great book. Pick one, Sam. Random question. <laughs> What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? What profession other than my own would I like to attempt? That's a really good question. Um, you know, when I was uh, 18, I was on a uh, college band trip to New Orleans. And I had secret plans to get off the bus. And when everyone loaded on the bus, I was going to stay in New Orleans and a jazz musician, uh, which is something I was really heavy into at the time. That's why I went to, I went to college as a music major in the jazz program uh, there. And my mother uh, told me, as I called her right before I got on the bus, she says, you make sure you get back on that bus. <laughs> I'm like, How did you know, <laughs> right? How did you know? So I think, you know, if, if I had it all to do, I love what I do, wouldn't change any of it. But, you know, one day it might be nice to go back into the world of being a musician again. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Chris. This has been a very fascinating uh, interview here. Appreciate the time that you gave us. Well, thanks, guys, for your time. I appreciated being with you this afternoon and uh, you know, being with you virtually there in that fantastic uh, brewery, your community. I, I wish I was there in person. It looks like a great place to be. It's an Austin trip. Definitely in the future. Well, I'm going to have, you got to come to Austin and I got to come out your way too and we'll, we'll make it happen. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time today. If you'd like to be a part of the podcast, check our website at beerandnapkins.com, all one word, for our schedule. We always record live in a pub and love to have you in the audience. Until our next podcast, here's to new ideas, new friends, and the pubs that enable greatness. Thank you so much for listening.